Well, we are continuing our look at the uh, epistle of Jude. And we know that he's writing to us. He's talking to us. He's letting us know that we need to be on our guard because there's a problem. There are those who have crept in. There are those who have sneaked into the church that are really not of us. That instead, uh, they are trying to change the church and change people into something that God did not intend them to be. I was thinking about this this past week, and I remembered uh, whenever this all started, you know, the United Methodist Church has been through so much, and it started just before, uh, well, God, by 1968, we, we adopted the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. It was developed by a professor at Perkins named uh, Albert Outler. And there are four things that we use when we look at scripture. And he said, these are the four things that John Wesley used. There is reason, experience, scripture, and tradition. Now, I put them in that order because that's the easiest way for me to remember them because it spells rest. And I like acronyms. And so R-E-S-T, reason, experience, scripture, and tradition. But with John Wesley, scripture was never third. Scripture was always first. The primacy of scripture was so important to him because it was on that that our doctrinal standards came from that and all the other things that the apostles sent down to us. And so with Wesley, it was first of all scripture and then tradition. What's been handed down to us? We talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, apostolic succession and how uh, in the church, there are always those that are examined closely who are going to be those who teach others and who proclaim the gospel. And if you, like I said, if I held hands with the bishop that ordained me and he held hands with the bishop who ordained him, it would go all the way back uh, through uh, John Wesley, all the way back to Peter himself. That that tradition of uh, scripture being number one and uh, that it not just a tradition, but uh, that it is number one. And uh, these other things, yes, reason. God gave us a brain. We're supposed to use it. We experience things in our lives. And the wonderful thing that I've discovered and that the Lord has just taken me through is that whenever I take the things that he has given us in his word and I apply them to my life, they become real. They are manifested in my life. And so that's the kind of experience, Christian experience. Uh, and it's a, it's a shared experience. It's something that is shared with all true believers all the way back to the first disciples. And so we have these four, but what they did, they said, okay, we're going to use these four things to do theology. And in doing so, we're going to think and let think. And we're, and they came up with something that was called pluralism. 
And the way that wound up being interpreted in the church, in the Methodist church, was you can believe anything you want to be and be a Methodist, but that was never the intent. And uh, Albert Outler later said, I wish I'd never even talked about the Wesleyan quadrilateral because it has been or introduced the word pluralism because he, it grieved him to see what it did to the church. 20 years later, that was changed. They went ahead and they said, hey, scripture's primary. And so our church now once again has put scripture primary. Before that, they put reason at the first, they put tradition at the first and let scripture kind of get just shoved to one side. Got to the point so that there was even a resolution at one point before the general conference to separate our doctrine from scripture because they were wanting to, there were those who had crept in among us who were wanting to move us away from the true faith, the faith once, as Jude says, handed down to the saints and the faith that we all as true believers share. And so uh, whenever I got to seminary, right out of the chute, my first course, I was sitting there in a pastoral care and counseling uh, course of all things. And somebody raised their hand. They asked the professor, said, so what do you do about people that that say, well, I know that uh, that they're gone now, but I know I'll get to see them again when I get to heaven. What do you do about people like that? And that started a discussion in the class to where, well, you know, some people have these worn out ideas that aren't true anymore. We, they basically were saying, even the, the people in the class with my classmates were saying, we know that when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. They were, and they were there. You see, there are a bunch of them, including this professor that had crept in and were teaching and holding another faith than the gospel that's been handed down. And so, uh, after listening to them talk about that for a while, and the professor had already said he loved to be invited to go out and preach in, in local churches. It kept him close to the people, you know. And so uh, I raised my hand and said, now, whenever you're leading a worship service and you lead the congregation in the Apostles' Creed and you say with your mouth, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, are you lying? And he just kind of stepped back and got kind of bug-eyed for a moment. And he said, I guess I am. Like he'd never thought about it. But then he quickly just went on. He didn't address it anymore. But uh, sadly, these people have crept in. And they have tried to turn our denomination into something it's not. And so this uh, next week, we're going to be looking more at uh, just exactly what is being put forward now that's wrong. But today, uh, 
We're looking at uh, the problem that uh, uh, the church was tempted to say, like, what's wrong with a little false teaching? What's wrong with just being a little off? You know, uh, and it reminds me of the time I was visiting one of my church members in a mental hospital and uh, we were sitting in the break room and she'd made a good friend. Uh, who anyway anyway so we're there talking and she said tell about what Methodists believe with this this woman said I'm 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 examining all the Christian faith all the different faiths right now all the different religions right now so what do Methodists believe what do you believe about this that and I said and, and they were talking about abstaining from drinking and uh abstaining from this and I said well you know things like that you know I guess the main general tenet right now is uh, just uh, moderation in all things, you know. And she said, okay, so a little bit of adultery is okay. A little bit of murder would be all right for you guys, right? You know, and she helped me to see I needed to be a little bit more specific. But that's just it. That's where you go. And so you get involved in a little bit of hanky-panky, a little bit of adultery. Then you wind up a little bit pregnant. And you know, the thing is, things get serious real quickly when you get off track. But when you stay on track, you're going to be blessed. Your life is going to be what it should be. And you're going to have the Lord's presence with you. So just picture somebody that you know that starts teaching something that you think is wrong it would be easy to just we want to be nice people don't we you know so it would be easy to just not say anything just let it slide and you might think well you know she's really a nice person i mean how can you criticize someone who does so much and who has such a good heart who am I to judge? I'm sure that my theology is off on some points and there's some things we're probably really not going to get straight till we get to heaven. And it would be arrogant to suggest that their position is wrong. So why waste time arguing over theology? There are much more important things that we should be worried about, like the poor, and the victims of hurricanes and tornadoes. That's the big stuff. But you see, those things can wind up distracting you from the truth. Yes, we do need to be taking care of the poor. Yes, we do need to be taking care of those who are facing troubled times. You know, that's, that's a part of being the Lord's uh, child. We do those things, but we don't do them at the expense of our souls. And this is what's happened. There are people that got so caught up in justice and just in the works of justice and things like that, that they wind up being unchristian in the way that they do it. And there's a way to do what the Lord told us to do and not get off on these tangents that we've gotten off on today. So the question is, What's wrong with a little false teaching? Who really cares about fighting over what we believe? 
Well, you remember Jude was warning us and he told us that we need to contend for the faith that's been handed down uh, from the apostles. And Jude answers, he gives us three reasons why we can't ignore false teaching. It would be, we'd like to just be nice and be quiet and just sit back. And, but the thing is, that's what's gotten us where things are today. Now, Jude's not talking about minor differences, by the way. He's talking about major departures from the faith that was once uh, and for all handed down to the saints. And he says that there are three reasons why we should care about this. He's writing this because we're tempted to say it doesn't matter or it's not a big deal. We're tempted to turn a blind eye on this issue and pretend that nothing's wrong. But Jude gives us three reasons why it matters. First reason, false teachers are rebels against God. We should care about false teachers because of who they are. And who are they? The Bible answers uh, in a surprising way. You know, I'd like to answer and say that false teachers are really nice people who are just a little bit wrong. But Jude, he's so much stronger. He says uh, that uh, false teachers are the latest in a string of rebels against God. In verses 5 through 7, he gives three examples of the Old Testament evildoers that he's comparing false teachers to. The Israelites that God rescued out of Egypt. God saved them out of Egypt, but they never got to enjoy the delights of the promised land because they refused to believe God. The angels who rebelled against God uh, and were condemned by him. Number two and number three, the rebels in Sodom and Gomorrah who were guilty of sinning against God and who were completely destroyed by God. You don't get any better examples of God's judgment than these three. This is serious. But note what God, what Jude says and what, note what Jude does. He's not just giving a history lesson here. He's attaching these three events to the false teaching that's taking place in Jude's day. In verse 8, he says, yet in like manner, say in the same way, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Do you see what he's saying? In verse 10, he again identifies these people with uh, the rebels against God, except he gives three more examples uh, and pronounces a woe to them. He lets it be seen what's going to be happening to these false teachers. He says they're like Cain, who thought that he could get, get away with it. Cain was the son of Adam and Eve, as you all know. He committed the first murder whenever he killed his brother Abel. And it's not a compliment to be compared to, to Cain. 
in what way are false teachers like Cain? To just kind of sum it up, he thought he could get away with it. He thought there was no judgment for him to face. He said, God just loves me. He's going to take care. Yeah, he told me if I would do good that my God be happy, but I don't have to pay any attention to him. He's going to do things his way. He thought he would not have to answer for it. No judgment, no judge, no reward to come. No reward will be given the righteous and no destruction for the wicked. In other words, Jude is saying these false teachers think they can teach whatever they want to and get away with it. Then he says they're like Balaam, uh, the self-indulgent prophet who was an Old Testament prophet for hire. He'd say anything you'd like and say that the Lord told him to say it for money. And he said they're like that. They just, they're, they're sitting in the spots that they're in for their own personal gain. And then he says they're like Korah, the rebel. Uh, he was the leader of a mutiny against Moses. He was a teacher who rejected what God had put in place as, the, as authority. And God judged him by having the earth swallow him alive. You can read about this in number 16. Um, has anyone ever told you, you, you remind me of, and you just wait to hear what they're going to say, and you're hoping that it's going to be some of uh, some celebrity, some good looking person, you know, you're, you, you remind me of, you don't want it to be their uh, wayward cousin that's been in jail for the last four weeks, you know, you don't want it to be uh, anybody like that. Well, you don't want to hear that you remind them of something like that. And that's what Jude is saying in this passage. These false teachers remind him a lot of some of the worst rebels in Old Testament history. David Helm says this about that. So in the body of this letter, we find Jude stepping through layers of time grabbing hold of historical events and examples in groups of three and pulling them into the present day and applying them in the first person and all of this under divine authority. These guys are those guys. Ancient archetypes who are walking in our world. They've come to life again, only they go by different names. And that's just it. People want to say, oh, the Old Testament, it's there for a reason. It was Jesus's Bible. It's what he preached out of. And he said, it points to me and you can get some pointers from it. And so here Jude is taking the Old Testament and he's calling attention to something very, very important. And the thing is, what he's getting across right now, false teachers will be judged. There's a judgment coming for false teachers. And because of that, it's a warning to us to make sure we're not carrying on false teaching and passing it on. You get the impression that the false teachers that Jude writes about were overstepping their bounds 
because they didn't think they're going to have to answer for it. Let me give you one example of verses uh, 9 and 10 of our passage today. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Basically, he was saying, I don't need to judge you about this. The Lord's going to take care of you. You're going to answer to him. I imagine that caused the devil to tremble. I would hope that it would. But knowing how dumb he is, probably not. Have you ever thought about this? If we see in scripture, we're getting closer and closer to this point when the Lord's going to return and Satan's going to wound up being cast into uh, into prison, basically, for a thousand years. You'd think after sitting there for a thousand years, just thinking about it, he'd come out and say, you know, I was wrong. I'm sorry, God. I'd sure like to get back on the right track with you. But we know what's going to happen because it's been foreordained, just like these false teachers were foreordained. Whenever he comes back out of the pit, you know what he's going to do? He's going to start deceiving people again. People have been marrying and getting married and having kids for a thousand years without Satan's influence. And what I see this as being is that it's only fair that those who live in that thousand year period, and they're not going to die until a judgment day. But the thing is, what's going to happen then is these people are going to get a taste of what it's like to be tempted. It's only fair that all of God's creation goes through this. They've been given a reprieve. They have learned how glorious it is to live just under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But as soon as the devil gets back, he's able to get an army together of people. He's going to be false teaching again. Remember, he was the first false teacher. He said, you'll not surely die, you know. Anyway, he's going to get at it again, going to get an army together. So you'd think that he'd learn But he doesn't. He's not going to learn. And so God, I mean, uh, anyway, so Michael, all he said was the Lord rebuke you. It was up to the Lord what was going to happen. But that's what's going to happen to these false teachers. Jude's very clear. These false teachers are rebels, just like the ones that we read about in the Old Testament. And God is going to judge just as he did the desert generation, the angels who sinned, and in Sodom and Gomorrah. All this this reminds me of a a story about a, a, a woman came into the butcher shop just as the butcher was getting ready to close. He was just starting to get everything away. He'd already gotten most of his meat put away. And this woman came in. She was having a dinner that night. She said, I'd like a nice hen. Do you have any nice hens? And uh, the, uh, the butcher said, so he looked down in his, in his bin. He had one hen left in there. But he said, well, let's see. And he fumbled around like he was 
you get into a handout and says, what about this one? And he said, she said, well, that's, that's just about right. Do you have any more? Well, let's see. He put that hen back down in there, just rolled it around a little bit like he was just sorting through them. He pulled it out, the same hen out again, said, what about this one? And she said, that was just perfect. I'll take both of them. <laughs> the thing is, your sin will find you out. Many of these false teachers think they're getting away with it now. But one of these days, they're going to answer to God. And Jesus has made it clear that they're going to be held to a harsher judgment than those that he deceived. Now notice this. He didn't say that those they deceived were not going to be judged. We need to be aware. We can't just sit back and not pay any attention to what we're being taught. I used to think that we could do that, but we can't. And so next week, we're going to be looking at some of the criteria. What are some of the basics that we need to be looking for? And uh, that's what we're going to be. But false teachers may think that they're going to get away with it. But we all know that God will have the last word when it comes to false teaching and every other sin. If we believe in judgment, you see, it changes everything. Charlie Peace was a notorious thief and a murderer in England in the 1800s. And he listened to a sermon on the day that he was going to be executed. The preacher was talking about heaven and hell. And Peace said, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say, and even if England were covered with broken glass, from coast to coast, I would walk over it on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Well, there is a hell like that, and we need to take it seriously. If you believe that Jude is saying about the judgment, uh, if you believe what Jude's saying about the judgment of false believers, you see, it changes everything. Jude is answering the question, what's so bad about false teaching? And he's saying that false teachers are rebels and that false teachers will be judged. But there's one more thing. False teachers are a danger. Jude writes in verses 12 and 13, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Sharon and I have been in spots where we have been head to head with these people uh, in different ways. We've had them in our churches before who would get a gathering, who would get a group of people uh, together uh, and, uh, and, and and they would be good church members and they would be those who would well, anyway I'll go with the, anyway we we have experienced this so glad none of you guys are like that it's just I just this is a wonderful church you guys are special but he says these are uh, the, 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 let's see these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves 
waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So Jude's saying two things here. First, he's saying that these people aren't helping the church at all. Some people like to get people like this in their church because they draw more people. They draw the world into the church. And the church winds up being weakened. And the church winds up being just a sad shell of what it once was when it had the vibrant living God in the midst of them. He says they're waterless clouds, they're fruitless trees, like stars that keep changing their course so that you can't navigate by them. These people promise a lot, but if you really look at what they're delivering, it's nothing but death. But it gets worse. These false teachers actually do harm. These hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now, we're going to have a potluck after the service today. Back then, uh, these false teachers, uh, uh, well, the, the church used to hold communion service in the middle of potluck, of a potluck type meal. And Jude says that these false teachers are dangers to the community. They are hidden reefs underwater. And hidden reefs underwater sink ships. You don't want to go anywhere near them. These teachers are dangerous to have around. And this is hard. And I'm sure that the people who got this letter were just shocked as they were reading it. I imagine if they read it at Corinth, where they were into such licentiousness, that they really were shocked when they read this letter if they hadn't read Paul's first, Paul might have gotten them straightened out. If you remember, they were getting way off into sexual sin at the Corinthian church. So uh, they're dangerous to have around. The, the, so the thing is, uh, the people who got this letter were probably surprised. These false teachers were probably really nice guys. And what's so bad about a little false teaching? And look, they're getting more and more members in the church all the time. This is really cool. These false teachers, Jude says, they're a problem. These false teachers are rebels. They're going to be judged. They're dangerous. False teaching is a very big deal. And in our own particular church, we're seeing the fruit that comes forth from false teaching as we are heading towards separation. Jude is telling us that false teachers don't look evil. They're probably really nice people. And uh, we're probably going to be tempted to think, so what's the big deal? But Jude says that false teachers are the rebels that we read about in Scripture. They're going to be judged, and they're dangerous to us. And that's why Jude says this. Beloved, 
although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, to struggle to hang on to the faith for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So see the dangers of false teaching. Realize that it's not just something that tickles the ears. It's something that can hurt the church and hurt us. But also remember why this is important. There is a faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And if you have experienced that faith and you know the Lord's presence with you, you know it is a faith worth contending for. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.